All right. Well, good morning, everyone. If I've not met you before, uh, my name's John Henderson, one of the pastors and elders here at UBC. And yeah, so it's my joy to be one of the teachers in this marriage equipping class this semester. Um, I'll be teaching with Dave Kendrick, who you may have met on the way in, and then also Dan Paul, who's not here this morning, but uh, will be the three primary teachers with this equipping class. So yeah, we're excited. Uh, the goal is to have 12 weeks together where, yeah, the first four weeks, we're going to just go to scripture and try to think biblically about marriage. Uh, what does it mean to see marriage the way God sees marriage, to understand it, to actually come to love it in our hearts the way God has put it together? And in many ways, by not just taking some of the classic marriage passages and then just kind of walking through them, but what we hope to do is actually start with what, where does marriage fundamentally every single day either stay on the tracks or go off the tracks? What are some of the theological truths? What, what really is a practical theology of marriage? The kinds of truths of the gospel, the things that God says about us and about others that actually day to day helps marriage become sweeter and helps us relate to our spouse more faithfully, more biblically. And so that's what the first four weeks. Then the second four weeks is, okay, how do we act biblically in marriage? What does it mean to be a husband and a wife? That what has God said to husbands? Say, okay, men, as a husband, here's, here's your job description. Here's what I'm calling you to. Here's what I actually, how I want you to think about your role and who you are. Same for wives. And then how do we understand even our work in marriage? How do we understand what God has actually called us to do and to be? That's kind of that middle section of four weeks. And then the last four weeks, we're going to just try to tackle various issues of marriage. So how do we think biblically about conflict? How do we engage in conflict in a way that is loving and faithful and fruitful? Yes, yeah, sex and money, family and children. And then the 12th week, we're, we're thinking about either doing something about the church where how, does, how do you think as a husband and wife about how you engage in the church and biblical community? Or we may do something else. We'll, we'll see. That's still a little bit up in the air. But, but this week, <clears throat> what we're going to talk about is this truth that you belong to another. And so before we jump in, let me, let me pray for us. Well, Father, we do thank you that you have not left us to figure this out on our own. We thank you that you have spoken clearly and decisively and beautifully and powerfully to us about what marriage is and where marriage comes from and how you've called us to think about it and to act within it and for what purpose it is to serve. Father, we pray that you would give us yeah, just attentive ears, that you give us hearts to receive with thanksgiving what you have declared, what you say, that you'd help us in these days ahead to apply what we learn so we wouldn't just be hearers of the word, but not doers, but that we would be doers of your word, that by your spirit, we would walk in these truths that you give to us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, you belong to another. That's what we're going to talk about this morning, because there's certain truths, I believe, that make life and marriage infinitely sweeter. The truth that we are not our own, we are bought with a price, is one of those. How many of you have ever thought about that, that, that statement in 1 Corinthians 6, we're not our own, we're bought with a price? It's a great marriage verse. We usually don't. I think it's a great marriage verse. 
Because I think the implications for it in our marriages are many. The fact that we've been joined to God and Jesus Christ to live for him. And the fact that we've been joined to our husband or wife to seek their true good. To serve them for God's glory. Those are two realities that really do put selfish ambitions to death. Those are two realities that really do go right after selfishness in marriage, which is the one of the great killers of marriage. And they also just stir up much more joy in marriage, thanksgiving in marriage, just holy desires and passions within marriage. Because even as a follower of Jesus Christ, in my flesh, I don't like that idea that I'm not my own. I don't like that truth that, okay, I belong to another, firstly to God, or even to my wife, or to anyone else. How many of you like your space? How many of you like your time? How many of us refer to it that way? My time, my space, my energy, my fill-in-the-blank. I like my emotions to be pulled and directed as I see fit, my sleep. Right? You start getting new little babies in your world. And how much of your life do they take? They take all of it. Your sleep, your energy, your money, your emotion, your, that whole word your just changes. So that's one example of a, a real gift that God gives that demands the giving of everything. And God thinks that's actually good. Well, marriage is even one of the precursors to that. It's a gift he gives that demands, if you're going to survive marriage, we have to think entirely differently about what belongs to us and what belongs to God. And so the new man in me rejoices in the truth that I'm not my own, but the flesh doesn't. And so get ready for that conflict. Every year of marriage as you go along, and it doesn't get easier the longer you're married. You know, you may find that God makes, it sanctifies you over time, makes you more servant-hearted, more loving, conforms you to Christ over time, but then what I find is just the stakes get higher. The issues just get harder, deeper, more complicated. And so that rub between spirit and flesh of I'm not my own, I'm bought with a price doesn't get a whole lot easier. It just makes more sense. After all, when you think about it, a natural man would like to think he exists for himself. There's even just certain words. We look back on parenting when our kids were young. There are certain words we never had to teach them. Words like mine. Never had to teach them that. Or give me. Or leave me alone. Those are just words that just rolled naturally out of their heart through their mouth. Didn't have to practice it. Because the only good kind of ownership our sinful flesh believes, is self-ownership. Even though that whole idea is an illusion. We all belong to someone or something. In other words, we're all slaves of something. We're all slaves of someone. The only question is, who? To whom are you enslaved? Whom do you serve? Yeah, John 8, the Pharisees were very offended when Jesus Christ offered them freedom Remember that in John 8? It's like, I will set you free through his word, through knowledge of the truth. 
And it says, they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it you say you will become free? Which is both ridiculous physically if you look around and see all the Roman soldiers while they're saying this. But what they really missed was the spiritual point. And Jesus is going to go on to sort of explain that, yeah, anyone who sins is enslaved to sin. So yeah, you may not think that you're enslaved, but you're enslaved to sin. And remember, what do they want to do after that? Then they're ready to kill him. That's what the flesh thinks about this idea that you're not your own. Rage is what it provokes. Romans 6.16, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. And so what it means is every human soul is a ruled soul. Every human soul serves someone or something. The only question again is what? Whom? Romans 6, 17, but thanks be to God that through, though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. No longer slaves of sin, but slaves of righteousness. Think about just the blessedness of that truth. That Jesus meant it when he says, no, I will set you free. Free from slavery to sin, slavery to death to be slaves of righteousness, to be my servants, no longer children of the devil, but of God. First John 3, 1, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. That God made us sons and daughters through the life, through the death, through the resurrection of his Son. And so what it means is we've been set free by being bound to his Son, to Jesus, I mean, what a glorious thought, freedom through marriage. If you go out into the world and, and ask for different images and analogies about what marriage is, how many people will use the word freedom? What's usually the images you hear when you say, okay, what's an image for marriage? What are phrases you'll hear? Ball and chain. That's a cultural idiom, right? Ah, the ball and chain. You know, I remember... Yeah, being with a group of guys somewhere, we had just done something, and one of them got up and said, well, time to go home and validate the wife. And just said it as, here, i got to go just do my duty. You listen to how the world talks about it, how the world thinks about it, and they're not thinking this is a road of freedom. Nor do they hear of believing Christ, trusting Christ, following Christ, Christ being Lord and Master as Freedom. But it's the greatest and only real road of freedom is union to Jesus. So that's how scripture sort of thinks about and understands where freedom comes from. It's through marriage to Jesus Christ. And then he gives horizontal earthly marriages to help tell that story, to help project visibly that picture. If the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. So we've been reconciled to the Father through union with his Son. We've been united to the Son through the filling of the Holy Spirit to be possessed by him, to be transformed by him, to be used by him to glorious ends. And so why am I saying all this, especially right out of the gate? Because I think that life becomes more glorious and marriage becomes more glorious 
when we grow in believing that we're not our own, we've been bought with a price, and that earthly marriage becomes sweeter when heavenly vertical marriage becomes sweeter. When we understand that that idea, that, okay, I, I don't belong to me, I've been purchased. And the more we're rooted in that sort of truth, the more it makes sense when he now calls us to go give ourselves away to others, to go serve others, to sacrifice for others. And on the other side, I think we still fight the fact that we're not our own, right? We fight it. And I think that has great effects on marriage as well as every other relationship in our lives, but especially marriage. For when you think about it, if we detest and resist the reality of belonging to God, who gave himself for us, who never fails or forsakes us, then you better believe we're going to detest the idea of being given over to some human, some sinner, someone who will wrong us, someone who won't love us perfectly. If we hate the idea of belonging to God, then you know you're going to hate the idea of belonging to another person. And so one naturally feeds the other. And so what I'm not saying is that you and your marriage aren't yours. I don't want to hear you to hear that. They, they are yours. They're just not firstly yours. They're just not ultimately yours. They're yours as a kind of stewardship. They're gifts God entrusts to be enjoyed, to be celebrated, to be delighted in. But as stewards of the gifts of God. That someday there will be a glory for us but not now. And so we'll talk about that in a couple weeks, of just that the glory isn't our own. There will be a glory that God intends for us, just not now, just not ultimately ours. And so turn, if you would, to 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6 is where we'll spend almost all our time this morning. where Paul is trying to help a group of people understand that they do not each belong to themselves, but to God in Jesus Christ through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And notice in verse 11 that he's going to tell them that they were washed, they were sanctified, they were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And Paul thinks that should have been pretty exciting news, that that should have been good news. Because flesh and blood isn't going to inherit the kingdom. Those who practice all these deeds of wickedness aren't going to inherit the kingdom. But then he says to him, hey, that doesn't define you. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. But then by the end of the passage in verse 20, Paul's going to leave no room for any other conclusion, but we're not our own. We're bought with a price. So live for God and his fame. Live for his glory. So let's see how he gets there. Verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. 
Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So here in verses 12 and 13, Paul's going to be quoting two very common slogans in the Corinthian church, slogans that they sort of used to justify using their bodies however they pleased using their lives as sort of vehicles for their own pleasure. Firstly, they say, all things are lawful for me. In other words, since God has set us free in Christ, everything's fair game. Since we're saved by grace, everything that we do or will do or have done will be completely forgiven, then now we're free to live however we choose, whatever suits us. Or because we're not under law, but under grace, I can decide what is and isn't for me. Or as Bon Jovi famously said, it's my life. It's an artist that my kids are growing more familiar with. Here's how he says it in that song. It's my life, and it's now or never, because I ain't going to live forever. So it's not just theologically bad, it's grammatically bad. Because I ain't going to live forever. I just want to live while I'm alive. My heart is like an open highway. Like Frankie said, I did it my way. I just want to live while I'm alive because it's my life. That's how the flesh talks about life, about everything. And so what Paul's going to do is dismantle that idea completely, not just to the Corinthians, but even to Bon Jovi. While we are forgiven, he's going to say, number one, and set free from the penalty of sin, we have not been set free to live however we please. Yeah, all things may be lawful in the sense of grace, but not all things are actually helpful in the cause of Christ. Not everything is profitable for his kingdom. Not everything serves his name. And so it's not enough to say, oh, is it just lawful for me? We must also ask, does this actually profit Christ and his kingdom? Does this actually profit others? Does this edify or tear down? Does this honor Jesus or dishonor Jesus? Does this actually further what God is trying to do in the world? So you notice how it's not enough just to think selfishly. Am I just free to do this? Has it been paid for by Jesus? But rather, okay, is Christ exalted? Is he honored? Are others built up and edified? Not all things are helpful. But then number two, since we've been set free from sin, why would we live under its mastery any longer? Or the mastery of anything other than the Lord and Savior? That's what he says next. I will not be dominated or mastered by anything. That yeah, Christ has set you free, but why do you want to go back into the prison, down into the prison cell, and try those shackles on again? If he set you free from that, why do you want to go be dominated by it again? It's like some of us will spend 20 to 30 years raising children. And that's a sanctifying process. That if we submit ourselves to what God is doing, it's humbling. 
He'll use it to conform us to the image of Christ. He'll use it to make us more servant-minded. He'll use it to wean us off the world. You just don't have enough money or time to be worldly anymore. But then how often do we think, oh, I can't wait for the kids to be out of the house so that then we can go. And we have some long list of sort of self-serving pleasure cruises. And I've had to ask myself, okay, do I want to take 25 to 30 years of good sanctification and just flush it all down the toilet? Am I thinking in those terms that, okay, once I get out of this thing that requires so much of me, then I can devote the rest of my life to serving myself? Like I've earned it. And that's how most of us think about retirement. That's how our culture thinks about retirement. Yeah, you spend all these years working and serving and, you know, take those last 10 to 15 or 20 and just feed yourself. And what Paul's arguing is why would you want to use freedom that way? Why would you want to use what Christ has done in sanctifying you to just flush it all away? That's what he's getting at when he says, but I won't be dominated or mastered by anything. Second slogan the Corinthians often used was this idea of food is meant for the stomach and the stomach is for food. Since God gave food to feed the stomach and serve the body, and he gave the stomach and the body to digest and enjoy food, Therefore, the Corinthians were arguing, and he gave sexual organs for sexual pleasure, and sexual pleasure for sexual organs. So somewhat they're arguing, number one, is it's just a mere biological act, like eating. What's the big deal? It's what he gave these things for. doesn't have any serious moral or Godward meaning. That's one thing they're saying. Another thing they're saying is that, you know, hey, the body just needs sex, the way the stomach needs food. God gave the stomach to get, take in food because we need it to survive. And in a way, they might be arguing, and he gave the sexual organs because the body needs that. So it doesn't have any real moral meaning, and the body needs it. Does that sound familiar? Does it sound like that's actually you know, what we're dealing with even in the day around us and have been for years? Isn't a new thing. This isn't a new temptation. My body as an amusement park for myself. My body and what I do in it having no real Godward moral meaning, it's just biology. Or it's just whatever I want it to be. So again, Paul is again dismantling that analogy in two ways. First, he's going to say the relationship between our created bodies and food, as we all know, will soon be put to an end. God will destroy both one and the other. But then secondly, the relationship between our created bodies... And the Lord will never end. It will only become more significant over time. Become more significant into eternity. And he roots that in the certain resurrection of our bodies. He will raise us in power just as he raised the Lord in power. And the Holy Spirit dwelling in us will guarantee it will guarantee both the sacredness of that union and the fact that we will be raised someday in power. Our bodies will be raised and glorified. So that's what he's doing here. He's dismantling these arguments the Corinthians are making for independent living, for self-defined living. But then after this, he's now going to basically give his point of view. He's going to respond to the Corinthians and what they're saying to say, okay, that's all wrong. That's rooted in falsehood. Here's the truth. But then he's going to say five important things about our bodies 
and two important truths about our souls, which means he's going to say seven important things about who we are and to whom we belong. That's where he's going to go next. Okay, let me give you seven things, five about your body, two about your soul, that should radically change the way you live your life. This should radically change the way you think about marriage, the way you're thinking about relating to your husband or your wife. So our bodies. Verse 13, for the Lord. Not only for ourselves. Not delivery vehicles for selfish desires. Rather, for the Lord. You know, how many of us wake up in the morning and ask the Lord, Lord, what do you want me to do with this body you've given me today? That is for you. And again, you think, think about something that flies in the face of this world. To actually walk up to somebody on the street and say, do you realize your body is created by God and it belongs firstly to him by creation? And if you're in Christ, then it belongs doubly to him by recreation. Like the Pharisees, the flesh just rages at that idea. Turns the thinking of the world upside down. Or we really should say right side up. I just ask 100 people on the street, for whom does your body exist? How often are you going to hear, for the Lord? Maybe once or twice in 100? Almost all will unashamedly say their bodies exist for themselves. That my body exists for my purposes, for my desires. What I don't want to say, though, is that our bodies don't belong to us. I think they do. Again, they, they're entrusted to us. They're just not firstly ours or ultimately ours. Again, they're gifts to be stewarded. So the best use of our bodies will always be in his service. So you think about if, if we miss that, and then you enter into marriage, how much you're going to miss about what God says to you about as a husband or wife. Because in 1 Corinthians 7, remember, he's going to say, hey, wives, your body's not yours, it belongs to your husband. Hey, husbands, your body's not yours, it belongs to your wife. And now you see where that's rooted. It's rooted in what he's saying in 1 Corinthians 6. You're bought with a price, glorify God in your body. Oh, and by the way, in marriage, you're giving it over to your spouse. Not to be abused, not to be mistreated, not to be harmed. Remember a husband and wife coming in, they are arguing about that passage one time about sex. And he's like, well, you know, you, you, the Lord says that your body is mine, and so come over here. And she says, yeah, and the Lord says, your body's mine, and so keep it over there. <laughs> so you realize this doesn't solve arguments, if that's how we're going to use the passage. But it is meant to do something in us. To help us see that, okay, this, what God has done in redemption, what he's done in filling my body with his spirit, what he's done in redeeming me is, is meant to change how I think about my body, my time, my energy, my emotion, everything else. That our body is for the Lord, verse 13. It's also the Lord for the body, verse 13. That whatever objection or sense of unfairness our flesh might have conjured up in that last point, I think really should be dissolved right here. That namely, the Lord has not taken our bodies sort of as his nameless slaves to be used or abused by him, but rather he's given himself to our bodies. He's put his spirit in our bodies. 
He's united us to him through his spirit. And I think that should blow our mind. It's not just our bodies for the Lord, but he's actually given himself to our bodies, given himself to us. Just the generosity of that. First Kings 8, Solomon's going to pray to the Lord in dedication of the temple. He said, First Kings 8, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his supplication. O Lord my God, to listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant prays before you today. So he's going to go on to pray that God's grace and mercy toward his people in the place God has chosen to dwell would be lavish upon them. He says, look to us. When we sin, forgive us. When we cry out, hear us. So his prayer for the temple could in many ways be similar to our prayer for our bodies. Lord, will you dwell on the earth and yet you would choose to dwell in me? To listen to me, to hear me, to relate to me, to care for me, to look after me. You think about what a gift that is. I can think of no religion in the whole world that offers that. God dwelling in you. God taking your body as his temple. God calling you to offer yourself up as a living sacrifice. And that actually not resulting in the mistreatment of your body. Like how many religions is it you you devote your body to whatever God that is by mistreating it, by whipping it, by striking it, by starving it? Yet here we say no, that, that we give our bodies to God and he gives himself. So you, if you imagine just the most powerful, beautiful, famous person that you can think of, and I know everybody has a different person, who <clears throat> is choosing to build a grand house and then invites you to come live in that house with them to hang out with them, to eat meals with them. Even if it's just for one year, whoever your hero is in music, your hero in sports, your hero in whatever, they actually invite you and your family to come stay in their mansion with them for a year and just hang out. How many of you would be offended? How many of you would go, wow, what a waste of time? Especially if they said, and and I'll pay you $10 million to do it. That we wouldn't see that as insulting. Right? That they would want our time, that they would want our energy, that they would want to spend time with us. And how much more impressive than any of our heroes is God? How much more glorious is that invitation, hey, dwell with me as I dwell with you. Walk with me, live with me, eat with me, commune with me. For the Lord, verse 13. The Lord for the body, verse 13. I'll ask you this, what, what kind of emotions do you think that stirs up? I mean, some of you can just say that now, like when you think about it, there, there's probably, there can be both encouraging emotions and discouraging ones, but what are going to be some of the common sort of reactions to this kind of idea? Just share some. So timidity? In what way? Say more, Drew. It's intimidating to try and commit your life. So intimidating. 
Yeah, there's a little bit of it that feel like, okay, those are really high stakes. Yeah. Because in related to that, I think it's sort of the fear, anxiety, right? The idea of entrusting myself to another person. What are they going to do with me? Entrusting myself to the Lord. Like, there's a part of us that thinks if I, like, give the Lord permission to, like, do anything he wants in my life, that it'll just become, it'll, he'll ruin it. What else? Yeah, so it's humbling. Yeah, it's confusing at times. It feels impossible. Like, okay, this idea of, okay, now I have to prioritize someone else, someone greater than me, someone more important than me. And yet my instinct is always to gravitate to myself. I think anger can be a common response. Frustration can be a common response. Or just think about every single emotion you'll ever feel, positive or negative, in your earthly marriage. And that's probably some reaction to being called upon to sacrificially love another person and to be loved by another person. And that all those horizontal feelings, I promise you, are firstly rooted in what you feel toward God, which is one of the gifts of marriage. It makes tangible in our feelings and emotions toward this other person what is already there in our feelings and emotions toward the Lord that we don't see. When your spouse asks you to do something while you're, you just sat down with your cup of coffee to read that book. And then they reminded you of the three things they'd asked you to do by this time that day. And that frustration comes up, or that irritation, whatever it is. You don't think you feel that a thousand times before the Lord every week? When he calls on you to serve, to love, to do something in a moment that is inconvenient? And we may even think in our minds, why did she have to ask right now? Of all the times, of all the, why did he have to right now? And even in that moment, we're meant to start interpreting that, not just horizontally, but vertically. And that is, does Jesus wait for it to be convenient for his disciples before he asks them to do something? Or is it going to be, no, a whole day of serving, whole day of teaching, then feed the 5,000 late into the night, now get in the boat, we're going to have a little storm at sea exercise. <laughs> and spend our whole night that way. And then we're going to hit the shore on the other side at sunup, and the people will already be there, ready for you to serve them. So do you think Jesus is trying to sort of disrupt, I'll decide, how I order everything. I'll decide when and how I serve. I decide, and that there's something in us that resists it, and even more importantly, that denies that that's there, and he'll use marriage to expose it. See, that thing you do with them is that thing you do with me. That feeling, that emotion, that reflux you have in your horizontal relationships, I hear that all the time from you. And that's not to shame us or put us down, but to help us see what are the ways in which our flesh is just short-circuiting life with God. He knows exactly who to put around you 
exactly who to put around you. He knows exactly how to stir them, how their sin will hit your fan and how your sin will hit their fan. He knows exactly how to time and author those things. I mean, you don't think he has providential control over every detail. There's such good news in that, that in every situation that then comes, we actually get to look at the Lord and go, okay, this is from you. And you think this is good for me. And God is not the devil who torments. God is not the devil who tortures, who uses circumstances to tear down. No, God is a great physician. Every move of the scalpel will bring healing. Every move of the surgery will produce something good in the end. It's just very hard to surrender to it because it's painful. But again, there's something freeing in knowing that, okay, that I'm his and he's given himself to me and he's doing something in all this. I like to say in marriage, you're not married to a perfect person, but they are perfect for you. There's something about the way they're things that rub you the wrong way. God thinks it's perfect for you. Well, Lord, all I ever wanted was a person who would. And he's like, I know. That's why I gave you a person who wouldn't. Because we think, you know, I just need to be. We don't realize how addicted to cocaine we are. And we're looking for someone to marry who's a great crack dealer. We just don't know it. Like, here are my needs. Here's all the things I need. They're really good at serving my needs, which God has a great way of veiling that. Then you commit to each other, get married. You enter into marriage, and after a little while, you begin to realize, wait a minute, they don't deal good crack. Because <laughs> the Lord knew what we were after. And he's like, no, I'm going to give you a great DEA agent. Like, their mission in life is to not give you what you want. And we think, wow, marriage has gone wrong. And God's like, no, this is marriage doing what it's meant to teaching you how to actually love another person, teaching you how to actually trust God, teaching you how to sort of surrender the things you think you can't live without, and actually help you see that all that stuff you do horizontally, you do it firstly here. You just can deny that because it's invisible, but you can't deny this. So it's learning how do we see that all of that is about this. Number three, to be raised through his power, verse 14. Our bodies are not temporary but eternal. They're decaying. They will go back to the dust, but they will be raised. He will also raise us up through his power. So these bodies that he's given us, God will raise on the last day. He will glorify them. We will live in them forever. What that means is they're not expendable. They're not to be trashed. They're not to be used however we please and then run into the ground. Rather, no, no, he's going to raise these very bodies and glorify them. If you just imagine that you're going to die in one month, if you got that news, and the body you die in will be the body that you live in for the first thousand years of eternity, would that affect the way you spent the next 30 days? Probably would, right? If you're like, okay, whatever, the, whatever your body is when you die in it, that's what you're going to get the first thousand years. You think you're going to start eating differently, exercising differently, being careful with that body, knowing, okay, on that last moment, I want it as, in as good condition as possible. 
Though this outer form is decaying, our inner person is being renewed day by day, 2 Corinthians 4.16. Our bodies are members of Christ, verse 15. In other words, our bodies are not independent. Redeemed by the blood of Christ, they're joined to Christ, part of the body of Christ. That means that everything we think, everything we feel, everything we do in our bodies represents Jesus, reflects Jesus. We could even say affects Jesus. Like when you, yesterday, I was putting away some dishes and I was in bare feet and I put this big heavy pan on a shelf and didn't realize I had pushed it against something that was sort of pushing it back. So I turned to get something else while the pan fell out and landed perfectly right on the ends of my toes. Not on my foot, just on the last quarter of an inch of all my toes, perfectly. It's like, I thought, wow, this should be added to the repertoire of like torture. And where I just take heavy pans and just hit the ends of people's toes. And of course, it hurt. I just remember thinking, Lord, all I'm trying to do here is serve. There's some, this instinctive, this is what I get. You know, this is the return on. But it affected my whole body. The pain shot up through my kneecap, through my hip. I felt it like in my elbow. How connected it all is. Do we think about it that way when we think about the fact that we're a member of the body of Christ? That what I do, how I live, affects the whole body Everyone else in the church, Christ is the head. Because all those pain signals go all the way up, straight to the head, and all the way down. That's what Paul's arguing here. We're not independent. It does matter what we do in our bodies. I know for me, that was one of the biggest adjustments to marriage, was all of a sudden I'm married to this person who has a, actually has an opinion about the way I use my time. And that was an adjustment. I was like, wait a minute, why do you ask where I was? Why do you keep asking what I'm thinking? My, my thoughts are my thoughts. What, are you, what do they matter? And so you realize, okay, thoughts, emotions, time, like she cared about what was happening there. That was an adjustment for me. I pushed back against that. Whoa, 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 whoa. You don't, there's some lines here, right? And I had to realize, okay, I do that with the Lord. Like, he cares about what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling, how I'm living, how I'm spending time. How I, and I didn't realize how much sort of I practically pushed back on all that. And part of how he exposed it was by bringing me into a union, into a marriage, where now Ruth cares about how I spend my time, cares about my thoughts, cares about emotions, cares about, and so there's now a relationship, a union. I'm a member with somebody. A temple of the Holy Spirit, verse 19. In other words, our bodies are places of worship. How many of us think about our bodies that way? Places of worship. Romans 12, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. That our bodies are holy because the Spirit dwells in them. 
We get back to here what he meant by, okay, the Lord is for the body. That's why we've seen a little bit where he says you can sin against your body. Well, what does that mean? Well, because it's a temple of the Holy Spirit, you can do something to the body that is like desecrating the temple of the Holy Spirit. So we can stop there. Any questions, any comments just on those first five truths that Paul is saying about the body before we jump into our souls? Any questions, comments? Yeah, Drew. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so in one way, yeah, no matter what happens to our bodies, our bodies may be burned and the ashes scattered on the sea, the Lord will call every grain back and knit it together and glorify it. So in many ways, even sins we commit in the body, that's part of the great promises of the gospel. They'll be forgiven, will be raised. But what he's getting at here is, hey, don't look at your body as some throwaway thing. Don't see your body as just some tool for you to use and abuse. Or to use however you please. No, this is the body he's going to raise. Yes, he will glorify it. But because of that, treat it well. Because of that, treat the bodies of others well. Because this has great implications for how we treat the bodies of our spouses. The fact that, okay, that's also the temple of the Holy Spirit. So just the implications for abuse in marriage. For physical mistreatment of a spouse. Like, do we realize, okay, their body is also a temple of the Holy Spirit who they have from God. Their body is also redeemed. And, and so, so, yeah, even though it will be glorified, I think Paul's using it to say, therefore, honor it and treat it in a way that is honoring to the Lord because that will be the body that he raises. That will be the body that he glorifies. And so it has value. Um, but then he's going to say two things about our souls that they are firstly joined to the Lord. By faith, we've been joined to the Lord. We are, verse 17, one spirit with him. And Jesus Christ is going to pray for this to happen and all of his followers. Listen to John 17, verse 20. I don't ask for these alone, but for those who will also believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. That's incredible. It's just that Paul's going to pray that all, or Jesus is praying that, that all his people, all his followers would be one with him as he's one with the Father, and the Father one with himself, that that union would come about. And it did. That's part of what Pentecost is about, the Spirit being given, the Spirit indwelling the church, uniting them to Christ, uniting them to the Father. And that's what, when we get to the, to the week on sex and sexual union, that's part of the beauty of the picture of sexual union. That's something even Paul's getting at right here in 1 Corinthians 6. That it's not just given merely for pleasure and enjoyment or procreation, but that one flesh sexual union between a husband and wife is actually one of the most vivid, sacred pictures of Christ in the church we have in the world. 
that as a husband and wife, so they are one flesh. Notice what he says here. And in the same way, you have been joined to the Lord. You're one spirit with him. So the one flesh, husband and wife, is meant to be a tangible expression of the one spirit union that we have with Christ. That's amazing. And that's actually the basis for what makes sexual immorality immorality. Is every other way of doing it outside of a husband and wife's union is a distortion of what God is trying to express in sexual union. That's what Paul roots it in. You notice that? That sexual morality is anything that tells a lie about that. Anything that falsely depicts what one flesh is really for between a husband and wife because that actually shows the one spirit union the church has with Jesus. So we're joined to the Lord, one spirit with him, and then bought with a price. And here Paul gives us the explanation for everything he said, for you have been bought with a price, not stolen, not exploited, but bought. And the price that has been paid is a very steep price. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 1. If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. He's like, that's what we've been redeemed with. Precious blood, Christ's blood, freed from sin's penalty, freed from sin's power, because a ransom was paid for our freedom. And that ransom that was paid was the blood of Christ. And the Father accepted it. Christ's body broken, his blood shed, and the Father's wrath was satisfied. Sin for his people paid for. And by that, he purchased us, ransomed us. I think the question we have to ask ourselves sometimes, okay, so the blood of Christ, it was enough to satisfy the Father. Is it enough to satisfy me? Whether that's in dealing with our own sin in our lives, in guilt and shame, or responding to the sins of our mate. Now, how often do we relate to the sins and shortcomings of our spouse as if the blood of Christ isn't satisfactory? As if his payment for their sin, okay, it may be enough for the Father, but it's not enough for me. I've got to get a little extra. Little, you know, how often we know it, right? We, we're kind of punishing them for what they've done. Punishing them emotionally, punishing them with words, punishing them with action. And all that is rooted in this idea that, yeah, we just don't think the blood of Christ is enough to cover it, to pay for it, to atone for it. Bought with a price that applies to us, that applies to our spouse. How is that going to change the way we talk to them, the way we see them, the way we relate? If we thought, wait a minute, Jesus purchased them, they are bought with a price. I am bought with a price. Their body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. My body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. They're joined to the Lord. I'm joined to the Lord, which makes us part of why we're joined to each other. 
And yet marriage is this very sacred, specific, additional kind of covenant and joining that amplifies the union of Christ in the church. So it's different than the way you're joined to everybody else in the room. The way you're specifically joined to your mate is to tell something specific about the gospel of Jesus Christ in a way that he specifically set marriage apart to do. We'll get to that in later. I'm way ahead. Conclusion, therefore glorify God in your body. This is the necessary result. The necessary end product of the attitude and perspective that Paul is commending to us. If all this is true that he's just said, therefore, as a result, glorify God in your body. Glorify God in the whole of you. It's not your body is your personal amusement part. It's not that your life is your own. Do whatever you want. No, it's bought with a price, not your own. Therefore, use your body, use your life to exalt Jesus, to honor Jesus, to magnify the name of God. He's been talking about the body, talking about the soul, and yet he clearly sees both body and soul as the whole of you and the whole of me. Therefore, devote the whole of me to his glory. The whole of me to his kingdom. Because we need to realize that most of us wake up in the morning with, okay, my kingdom come, my will be done as the operational principle of my life. That's the default setting of the flesh. We have to pray that the Lord help us go, okay, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done. He wants us to devote ourselves with souls and bodies to his honor and pleasure. He wants us to live with gladness, mind you, with joy to display his beauty, to display his power, all that to the world around us, meaning in our use of time. We think of, okay, how do I use my time for the glory of Christ? How do I use my time in honoring him, in our use of energy? I've had to ask myself, this has been more common recently that just this past year especially, as my energy feels more depleted, I don't know, I mean, I don't know if it's an age thing, but it's gotten to a point where I just can't do the things I used to do without it costing something. And so I've actually been convicted of, okay, am I doing something with my body right now that's going to leave energy for me in an hour to serve in areas I know I'm going to have to serve in? Like if I really take this on what I'm about to take on, that may be really exciting, thrilling for me, but in an hour and two hours, when I'm going to be called upon to be in this meeting or to go take care of this thing, am I going to have energy to devote myself to that in a way that is most loving of God and others? So I've just had to come to realize, wait, energy is actually a finite thing that I have. I didn't used to have to think about it like that. I think there was just a time where I thought, oh, yeah, it grows on trees. It just is always, whereas there's a way in which what I did yesterday, I'm still recovering from it. There's a way in which, okay, the older I get, okay, it seems like days are taken to recover from. So I've actually had to think more about, okay, how do I use energy in a way that honors, yes, and depends on God for energy, but it doesn't squander energy. In our use of thoughts and emotions, how often do we think about it in terms of, okay, am I using these thoughts in a way that exalts Christ? Am I using my thoughts in a way that actually equips me to love others well? 
Because again, in our society, we think, hey, if it doesn't hurt anybody else, what's the problem? What I do in the privacy of my bedroom, what's that to anybody else? And how much more are thoughts? Well, what I think about in here, what does that have to do with any? Well, it matters to God. That's part of our bodies, part of our souls, part of what he's purchased. In our use of words, in our use of sex, in our use of material resources, in our use of talents and gifts and skills, in all of those areas, God's saying, therefore, glorify God in your body. I've bought all of that. I possess all that. I own all that. I've filled you with my spirit. You're a temple of the spirit. Therefore, in all those areas, use them to glorify me. What do you think implications are for marriage? Let's kind of close there. Let's talk about that part. What do you think, if, if we really embrace that, if we're learning to embrace that, if God's doing that in our hearts and lives, what do you think the implications are for marriage? I'm going to start calling on people. Danny. Yeah, there's a big one. Yeah, right. The, when you start thinking about, okay, the things I commit to, I'm joined to this other person, that they're actually now being joined to that commitment. <clears throat> how I use my time, how I use my energy, that... There's something about that that is so helpful because now I have to think about this other person before I commit time, before I commit energy. Yeah. What else? We, we can fool ourselves thinking we're using our energy for our spouse. Like, I'm working all day to provide for my family, and then by the time I get home, I have no energy to actually be with my family and do what I need to do. But I somehow say that's okay because I did it for my Yes. Yeah, so in some ways it forces us to think about how we're balancing all that. That, okay, yes, yeah, so I, I go work and labor, earn a wage, but that's to support my family, to care for my wife, my kids. But, but then if that's taking on a proportion, an almost idolatrous size in my own life, and I'm justifying it because, okay, but I'm supporting them when really, no, it's just what I want to do. And so it forces us to actually ask ourselves, is this really for the glory of God? Is this really, so it doesn't mean, okay, I just won't work, I'll just be at home. It just means, okay, how I think about the proportions is now, I, I can't just go with the flow. The actual jobs that we choose, we actually would think it through. I've, I've actually sat with a, with a brother here in the church in the last couple of weeks that just based on job changes, he's having to reevaluate it. What they're now asking of him so, okay, this is going to interfere with other things the Lord has called me to do. So I'm called to provide for my family to work, but not without qualification. And so, yeah, it makes us sort of think and ask for God to actually give us real wisdom. Okay, Lord, I actually need your wisdom in how I handle all the many responsibilities you've given me. Um, I can't just go with the flow. Yeah. What are other implications?
Yeah. Yeah, what's even going to yeah, make us think about okay, the influence we have on our spouse, that the Lord's actually put us in a position in their life where there's real weight. It's funny sometimes in arguments, there'll be things that we, it's like if there's something we really are expressing our feelings, our emotions, uh, things we desire or want, we want our spouse to take it really seriously. But if we say something rude, we don't want them to say it, take it seriously. That interesting, we want, no, no, regard this with weight, but oh, those other things I said over there, don't take that so personally. You're too upset about it. When we have to realize, yeah, that we're given a position of weight in the life of our spouse, that our words matter, it affects them. And so again, it now forces us to think in terms, not just selfishly, not just independently. Yeah, there's some discussion questions there on the last page, and these are just for you to take with you and Consider over lunch or this afternoon and the days ahead. Are you learning to think and act not as your own in life as a whole, marriage in particular, but bought with a price and a steward of the body and life God has given you by his grace? How does the truth that you belong to another affect you emotionally and relationally? I think this is an important question to answer, to not avoid this. Like that truth, okay, not your own bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Does it anger you? Be honest about that. Or humble you? Do you feel anxiety about that? Or peace? Does it encourage you or discourage you? Does it strengthen you or overwhelm you? Does it motivate you or deflate you? Like if you know you're, being, you're rising up in a particular day and you have a day ahead of you of serving others, is that miserable? Is that a day without motivation? Is that a day deflated? Or are we learning by God's grace that that's actually a, a well-spent day? Um, let me pray for us. Well, Father, we thank you that you have bought us with a price. You've given your son to live, to die, to be raised for our salvation. You've united us to him through your spirit. Someday you will raise us in power to be with him forever. We are united to Jesus. We are given in marriage to him. And through that marriage, we're set free. Through that marriage, we become your children. Through that marriage, we have an eternal inheritance reserved for us in heaven. So we pray that those precious promises and truths would be what anchors our attitudes about earthly marriage, what shapes the way we think, feel, and speak in our earthly marriage, knowing that you're using our earthly marriages to tell that story of Christ in the church. And so we pray that you would bear much fruit in us and through us in these days ahead. In Christ's name, amen.